Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And again, he, Jesus, entered Capernaum, and after some days, it was heard that he was in the house. I love that phrase. Jesus is in the house. Can I hear an amen? How awesome is it to have Jesus in the house? And here's the deal. Wherever two or three are gathered together, the Lord says he's there. So you know what the good news is today? Jesus is in the house. He's here with us today. And immediately, it's interesting, in the Gospel of Mark, which is a short gospel, the Gospel of Mark is the preaching material of Peter. Peter was a first-hand witness that passed it on to Mark. It's the shortest of the Gospels, but it's filled with action. So 41 times in Mark's Gospel, we hear this word immediately, immediately, immediately. And it says, immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room in the house to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. I want you to say that with me. He preached the word to them. Again, he preached the word to them. This is one of the things that makes Calvary Chapel a distinctive that we have. We preach through the whole Bible. And I, I got to tell you something about me. I love junk food. You know, give me a good Costco hot dog and a bag. Of, I, I'm, I'm just pretty happy with that. My favorite of all chips are just the plain white Lay's potato chips. They're coated with salt. But here, here's a confession. I can eat the entire bag. Now, I don't eat the entire bag. I leave four chips in the bag, roll it up, put it back in the cabinet because I feel better about myself when I do that. But I want to tell you, you can't live on junk food. All right, you've you got to have a solid diet with a real, real meal. I had the opportunity to have one of the best meals of my entire life over at Pat and Angie's last night. Now, I know there's, there's like rib wars, right, between Chris Bagno and Pat. So Pat's ribs were the best that I ever ate in my life. By, by the way, when I called Chris last night, I told him, I said, I, I know you're going to hate to hear this. I just ate the best ribs of my life. There was just silence on the other end of the phone. So. But, but here's a, a fantastic meal. Uh, you know, one that's going to stay with you because it has nutrition. And this is what happens when we teach through the whole Bible. Do you realize in Acts 20, 27... Paul is, is raising up the Ephesian elders, and he said this, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel in God's word. Now, he'd been there three years. In other words, what he's saying there is he's taught through the entire Bible. As I mentioned earlier, I was a pastor in Kansas in a community church when I first started out. And the way that I was raised, which is the way most pastors are raised, you, you make a nice, neat little three-point sermon off of six verses. Now, on Wednesday nights, I would teach through the Bible. You know, we would take a book of the Bible and go through. I was a pastor there for nine years. It was my first pastorate. They called me Kid Preacher. You know, nobody's called me that in a long time. But anyway, I was 26 years old at that time. So I'm still writing out my sermon on note cards, and then I'm filing them away. Well, when I became a Calvary chaplain, began teaching through the Bible, and let me tell you how I do it, and I think Chris is very similar to this. I, on Sunday mornings, am generally in the New Testament, generally taking a chapter a week. Sometimes, you know, it can't be that long, but generally that's what I'm doing. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching through the Old Testament. I start in the book of Genesis, and I go through the, to the book of Malachi in the New Testament, I'll take a gospel, then I'll do an epistle and come back and do another gospel and epistles and take people through. Now, I've been a pastor in Yucca Valley for 30 years. It takes me 10 years at going that rate to get through the entire Bible to do what the book of Acts tells us to do, and that's to teach the whole counsel of God's word. If I was just giving a nice, neat little three-point sermon off of six verses. Exactly how long would it take me to teach through the whole Bible? And the answer is, it will never happen. Not even once. And so here's the thing. Once we get a diet 
for the word of God being taught in context, nothing else is going to satisfy us. I live in a community that has the biggest Marine Corps base in the world. 29 Palms is 30 miles away. Almost anybody that's ever served in the Marines, and thank you if there's anyone who has served in any of the branches of the military are here. We appreciate our freedom. But here's what happens. People will be in our church doing a tour of duty for a couple years, maybe three years, and they'll move somewhere else, and they'll go, uh, you spoiled us. Uh, we we can't find a church that's teaching through the entire Bible, even if they end up being in the Bible belt, and, and they still can't find a church that's teaching through the entire Bible. I love what the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two, two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, And I want you to listen. It is the discerner, the thoughts and the intent of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We have a saying in our church. I think Chris has taught it to you as well. Read your Bible and pray every day. Say it with me. Read your Bible and pray every day. Here's why. The word of God is living. It's powerful. It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Where does sin begin in our lives? Sin begins in the thoughts and the intents. And so when the Word of God is in our lives, when we're hearing it, when we're reading it, do you realize the Lord is operating with a sharp, double-edged sword, cutting out the very root of the cancer of sin before it ever becomes an action in our life? And this is the powerfulness of teaching the Word of God. And here's the reality. For you, God may make a living Word of God today out of verse 2. For you, it may be verse 4. For you, it may be verse 10. Because it's living. And the Lord knows exactly what is in the deepest places of our own hearts and is able to minister to us life out of everything in the Scriptures. We also have a K through 12 Christian school. We had a high school kid, and it, which it often happens. The parents are wonderful Christians. The kids, they live in a Christian home. And so this guy, you know, he was in our high school, but he never surrendered his heart to the Lord. And I lost track of him, you know, and he wasn't our worst kid, but he definitely wasn't our best kid. And uh, 10 years later, I get a letter from him. He's a pastor. And he said, Pastor Gerald, I just wanted to write and tell you how thankful I am. Because in our school, we teach through the Bible, just like we do in our our church. And he said, I got saved Bible class in Leviticus. I didn't know you could get saved out of Leviticus. Have you ever read Leviticus? There's something somebody can get saved there. But here's the deal. It's the living word of God. So let's look at it. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. Now, this is very important. This paralytic could not get to Jesus on his own. And I want to tell you, every single one of you have people who cannot get to Jesus on their own. Greg Laurie He shared this after Easter. They did some sort of survey. 75% of people in America surveyed said they would have gone to church on Easter had someone invited them. Now, I just, there happened to be one of these left up here. You know what it says? You're invited. So do you guys realize the greatest witnessing evangelism tool that you can have? It's not the radio, it's not a billboard. It's not a TV show. It's you personally inviting someone. And here's the thing. Human beings are very insecure. And we now live in a post-Christian society. Do you realize there's tons of people out there that have never even been to church? That, that wasn't the case when I was a kid, you know, especially not in the area that I lived in. Everybody was a member of a church, even if they didn't go, because you had to have someplace to have your funeral dinner. But anyway, 
Today? Yeah, no, there's a bunch of people never, ever been anywhere. And here's the deal. Don't just invite them. Offer to bring them. Bring them to Jesus. Because Jesus is going to be in the house every single Sunday. And there are those who cannot, there are those who will not, because they have no idea what it's like to be in a church. And so they're scared. But if you say, hey, you know, come with me, I'll pick you up on Sunday. And better yet, say, I'll buy your lunch after church. They're sure to come then. You know, free food brings people all the time. Now, the scripture goes on. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And right now you're going, wow, I'm, I'm grateful it wasn't my house. But let me read on. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, let, let me tell you a funny story because Pat alluded to it. So Chris and BJ, who is my assistant pastor, he's also my son in love as Chris is my son. You know, I'm the only dad that Chris has ever had. His dad died when he was two years old. Uh, his mom deserves a gold medal for surviving because she raised eight kids in the middle of the worst part of Los Angeles and worked her entire life at a grocery store to do it. And for any of them to even have survived, it's a, a wonderful uh, blessing that they did. So I'm the only dad that he's ever had. My, my assistant pastor, for those of you that don't know my story, my wife, Lydia's mother, we were married 31 years. She went home to be with the Lord. I had a pastor friend up in Buell, Idaho, and he ended up getting the same cancer as my wife did. We were all four. We didn't know. I knew him. We didn't know each other's families. Uh, we were all born the same year, married the same year. Our oldest kids are the same age. Our youngest kids are the same age. Our spouses both went home uh, uh, within 11 months of being diagnosed of cancer. And a year later, I married Marilee. So we've been married 11 years. So uh, BJ had a great dad, but you ask him, I'm his dad now. And so both of these young men I've been raising up, to be able to take trips to the Holy Land. So they've been with me on my last two trips. I've gone 30 times. So we planned this trip out. And so, you know what Chris does? This is how much he loves you. He prints all the brochures, and he gives them all to you first. I just now got the brochures. You guys got 18 people signed up. So we were laughing about the other day. But one of the places I take you in Israel is a house. A house that's reconstructed from the first generation, from, from the time of Jesus. Because, again, when you see it, you can understand this story. So there's several places that we go in Israel. And, and, you know, the entire house is from here to the wall. That's how the houses were. They were built closely compacted together. One of the houses that I take you to is in a place called Catherine, where it's built on the side of the hill. So they dig down. This side of the house was a hill. So then for them to walk onto the roof, it, it, was, it was no big deal. If they didn't have that, all of, because the houses were so closely compacted together, all of them, the roof was their patio. You know, they didn't have acres of land like we do here in a big front yard, backyard. It, it, it just wasn't built that way in the Middle East. So here's a house, and I take everyone. We crowd in. The one that I love going to has a little sleeping loft up here, and there's a ladder. So I'll climb up on the ladder, and I'll go through this scripture because then it's so easy for you to understand. Because they had timbers going across this way, you know, just wood timbers going across this way. Then they, they had dirt and uh, adobe on the top of them. So to, to rip off the roof, it really wasn't all that hard. And it could be fixed. You just put the timbers back over, put everything back on. So before you start freaking out over this guy's house that they just destroyed, you, you need to understand this part of the story. So these four friends are bringing their friend to Jesus. And when they could not come near because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. And when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic. Now, that's interesting. Jesus saw their faith. 
And now he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. Now, I have a feeling the guys on the roof, as they're looking down, you know, in their heart at least, are going, that's not why we brought him. We brought him because he's a paralytic. We brought him because he could not walk. But the wonderful thing about Jesus, Jesus sees our hearts. And Jesus sees what the greatest needs of our life are. Now, church tradition, the Bible doesn't say this, but church tradition says that this man was in advanced stages of a sexually transmitted disease that had made him a paralytic. So whether that's the case or not, it was, it was sin in his life, which was the root of the problem, which is what Jesus is going to minister to. Now, you know what the good news is? For every single person that's in this sanctuary today, it doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. The Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 1, though your sins are as scarlet, he makes you white as snow. In Psalm 50, or Psalm 103, excuse me, I love this psalm. It says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he has removed our transgressions from us. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 8, the Bible says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people and none shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful. Listen very carefully to this. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember what? Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember. How many people in this room have sins and lawless deeds that you're very thankful the Lord will remember no more? And here's the great truth. I don't care where you are. And I don't care what you've done. This is what separates Christianity from every religion and ism that is in the world. Because in the world, every religion says, okay, you got to do this and you do that, you do this, you do that. You, you're trying to earn your way, climb your way to heaven, not with Christianity. In Christianity, we look at what Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the world has done for us. And he has done it for every single person that has ever lived or breathed. And that is, he died on the cross to take our place. We can never get good enough to earn our salvation. It is a free gift. That's why the Bible talks about the amazing grace of God. And so before I go on with my message today, I want to make sure everyone has this opportunity. The Bible says in the book of Romans, in chapter 10, verse number 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus... And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just in case we miss it, it goes on three different times. Everyone, everyone, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here in this sanctuary today and you're not saved, I got great news. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't want to do that, then you need to understand you're making a willful decision not to. You know, being saved isn't like playing horseshoes. In horseshoes, you, you get a point for being close. You might, you might even be married to someone that's a believer. It doesn't, it doesn't make you a believer. You, you, you may be a kid that has two parents who are believers. That still doesn't make you a believer. Every single person needs to ask themselves. So here's the great news. Wherever you are, whatever you've done right here, right now, 
as you believe in your heart, as you confess with your mouth, you will be saved. Will you all join with me in praying? Lord Jesus, pray with me. Lord Jesus, I do believe that you are the Messiah. I do believe that you died on the cross. To pay the price for my sin. And so with my mouth I confess. With my heart I believe. And I ask for forgiveness of my sins. I ask you to come into my heart. And be the Lord of my life. And I want to follow you. All the days of my life. In Jesus name. Everyone said amen. Let's give the Lord a hand. Now, my friends, we're going to find there were always two crowds. So here's Jesus. He says, your sins are forgiven you. In verse number six, but some of the scribes setting their reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven to you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? My friends, Jesus is going to ask him a question. There is nothing hidden. That's one thing that we got to understand. Our hearts, our thoughts are never hidden from the Lord. So Jesus asks a question. Which is easier to say? Your sons are forgiven, or your sins are forgiven you, or take your bed, rise up and walk? Well, it's way easier to say your sins are forgiven you. If I look at Jay and say your sins are forgiven you, you know, who, who, who's going to know? But if this paralytic is laying there that everyone in that community knew was a paralytic and knew that he couldn't walk, and Jesus says to him, I say to you, rise, get up and walk, that's greater, isn't it? That proves that he is God. And that proves that not only does he have the power to raise him, but he has the power to forgive him his sins. So he's going to kill two birds with one stone. The question on both of them, the answer is going to be Jesus is the Son of God. And then he says in verse number 10, But that you may know that the Son of Man, that's a messianic term. We read it in the book of Daniel in chapter 7 has a power to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately arose and took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. For the scribes and the Pharisees that were there, and they saw this miracle. Wouldn't that be enough to make them believers? My friends, we're going to begin here. We're going to see it all the way through the gospel. That there are two classes of people. There are the believers and there are the fault finders. And the fault finders are going to take exception at everything Jesus says. Everything that Jesus does. They're going to take fault at what he does not do. And and even when they see a miracle, as we get into chapter 3, on the Sabbath day in Capernaum, there was a man with a withered hand. And again, tradition tells us that that guy was a mason. And so something had happened to his hand. It was now mangled. Imagine being a one-armed mason, you know. You're not getting much done, are you? And and Jesus, immediately they go out and plot against him. And in fact, the very last straw, the very last straw is going to be when they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. That's it. We got to go kill him. And my friends, I want to tell us something about the culture that we live in today. We now are immersed in a culture that takes offense over everything. 
We're in, in, involved in a culture that one word, one thing. You know, when I was raised in Kansas and I went to public school, guess how we started our day every day? We had an opening word of prayer and the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance. And who would think, it, did it matter whether you were a Republican or a Democrat? No, you know, it was, it was one thing that united us all together. Who could ever dream that we would now live in a country where singing the national anthem could be construed as being racist? But we have to understand that that hatred and fault finding that we find across the culture, we got to be on our guard that it doesn't come into the church. Because I want to tell you, fault finding comes into the church. I've been a pastor for 40 years. And, and let me tell you, the Bible talks about the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Gifts of the Holy Spirit, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, miracles, speaking in tongues, fault finding isn't in there. But I've known people who thought that was their gift of fault finding. When the Bible in the book of Galatians talks about the fruit of the Spirit, love, peace, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, and self-control, fault finding isn't in that list. But I've watched people throughout the years be in a church and they start Fault finding. And my friends, let me tell you, I'm a pastor that goes to all kinds of conferences. I'm around all kinds of churches. And let me tell you, every church has its group of fault finders. And let me tell you how it works. The fault finders are only happy in doing one thing. I'm going to tell this person what the fault is. And I'm going to tell that person what the fault is. And I'm going to tell that person what the fault is. And, and I'm going to get my little bandwagon. And, and when I get enough power, then I'm going to do a, a coup. And, and my friends, again, and especially living in a community like this, our greatest witness is that we love one another. Now, I want to tell you something. And I've, I, I've been a pastor for 40 years. I always tell my church this. If for some reason you're not happy anymore, you don't have to hate me to leave. You can just leave. But that rarely happens. No, what they want to do is create all kinds of division and stuff before they go. And I want to tell you something the Bible says. The Lord hates, not mildly dislikes. The Lord hates those that sow seeds of discord among the brethren. I teach young men how to be pastors. And one of the things that I, I share, because they're going to go in a church and be, be an intern to a pastor, and I always tell them, you cause a church split, I'm ripping up your diploma. Because it's something clearly the Lord says don't do. Now, if you want to go somewhere else, just go and be a blessing. Don't be one of those that are causing problems. I just got back from a pastor's conference. I actually wrote this down. Those who cause division and cut the baby in half give proof that they didn't give birth to the baby in the first place. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament of King Solomon? There were two prostitutes. They both had a baby. The one rolled over on his baby and smothered it at night. So she claimed the other ones was her baby. And they brought it before Solomon. They're arguing this one. No, it's my baby. It's my baby. It's my baby. And Solomon said, well, I'll tell you how we're going to solve this. We'll cut the baby in half and give each of you half. And the one who was the real mom said, no, no, no. You know, let her have the baby because she was the real mom. And Solomon said, she's the real mom. Give her her child back. And here again, the Bible is so clear. Jesus' last prayer for us was that we would love one another as he has loved us. Can I hear an amen? Now, here's the sobering thing. This is something that none of us like to think about. If I'm a fault finder today... What makes me think I wouldn't been in the fault-finding group with Jesus? If, if that's my heart today, what makes me think any different? My friends, and I, I, I researched this out a little bit. 
Do you realize the entire time of Billy Graham's ministry, there were fault finders in Billy Graham's ministry? Do you realize that they, they would do radio shows and TV shows, and it was all laced with scriptures, their fault finding of Billy Graham? Do you know any of their names? No. Because when you're a fault finder, what exactly are you doing for the kingdom of God? But have you guys ever heard of Billy Graham? And I'm positive when Billy Graham stood before the Lord, he heard these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I tell you, I wouldn't have been wanted to have been one of those other people who the entire life were being Pharisees at attacking him. And so it's something that we're going to see as we go through. Well, hey, let, let's hope this was an isolated incident. Okay, maybe they had a change of heart. Let's read on. And then he went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. Underline that in your Bible. You see, our Lord, we follow in his footsteps. He preached to them. Now he's teaching to them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him meeting with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? You know what the disciples answered? I don't know. You see, my friends, you're always going to have people who try to put you on the spot. Here, some time ago, I was downtown. And this guy found out that I was a pastor at Joshua Springs. And he was obviously not a fan of Joshua Springs. And he comes up to me and he says, I, I want to tell you something about your church preacher. And I go, oh, well, what's that? He said, there's sinners there. I said, I hope so. I want our, our church to be a hospital. I want it where they're ripping off the roof to bring the paralytic that may have got it from sexually transmitted diseases coming there. I want it to be a hospital. Do you realize the fault finders gave Jesus a name? A friend of sinners and tax collectors. I, for one, am very glad that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners because I happen to be one. All right? And had he not liked people like that, he would have never liked me. And here's the thing. Jesus, he sees past where we are. Now, when we're talking about Levi, we've got to understand something. This man was hated. Now, let's be honest. How many like the IRS? Okay, when you come home and you have a letter from the IRS, do you go, oh, look, honey, we got a letter from the IRS. That's got to be good news. <laughs> yeah, never, never is a good news, is it? And, and, but imagine your tax money isn't going to fix your roads and put police on the street. Your tax money is going to Rome. An invading army has come. You're funding the debauchery of Rome. And, and not only that, if that's not bad enough, one of your own has become a Benedict Arnold. He's working for the Romans. And, and if that's not bad enough, he has the name Levi. He's of the tribe of Levi. They're supposed to be the priests of Israel. And here is a guy who has completely sold out. And Jesus loves him. Isn't that awesome? Isn't it awesome there isn't anybody that Jesus cannot save? That, that he died for absolutely everyone. Only reason why people don't get saved is that they won't accept him. They won't believe in him. But for anybody that does, and there is Levi, the man that everybody would have hated, the man that would have been the Benedict Arnold of Israel. 
And Jesus looks at him and he says, come follow me. Isn't that awesome? But we got the fault finders. Why does your master hang out with tax collectors? And we, we wouldn't even let the, the hem of the robe of our garment touch such a person as that. And, and not only does Jesus love him, but let's see what happens. And the, and the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I did not call, come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Years ago when I did children's ministry, we had a song. I don't want to be a Pharisee because a Pharisee ain't fair you see i don't want to be a sad you see because a sad you see is sad you see i just want to be a sheep And, and here we have matthew as he decided god gives him a good name a new name do you realize what the name matthew means gift of god so god the lord gives him a brand new name matthew and the very first thing that matthew does he has a party Now, my friends, the only one that would hang out with Matthew were other tax collectors and sinners. And so that's who he invites over to his party, and he invites Jesus. And Jesus comes. Let me give you a little warning. When we first get saved, we have no problem with the next phrase of the song Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me. You know, it's it's all real fresh in our mind. But, you know, things start changing in our lives. I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't run with those who do. And all of a sudden we can be so insulated in our life. We don't even know a non-believer, let alone ever having a non-believer over to our house. How about that? How how about inviting someone who 100% you know isn't a Christian? Over to your house. Because I want to tell you, when you do that in the name of Jesus, guess who's going to be in your house? Jesus. He's in the house. He's going to come. And so they have this party. And then Jesus says to them, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not call to come the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Let me tell you one of the worst sicknesses that there is, and that's self-righteousness. It's a pharisaical heart. It's a fault-finding heart. Because when we're doing that, here's what makes it so sick. You don't even realize how sick you are. My friends, have you ever been around those Christians? You don't even like being around because they're so self-righteous. Let alone some unbeliever. And, And so, my friends, let that never be us. Because Jesus has come. He's come. He wants to Willis Springs to be a hospital. He wants it to be a place where anybody can come and hear the truth. And here's the deal with Jesus. When Jesus, it's not just everybody come and you can live any way you want. and It's going to be all hunky-dory. Because when we read the Bible, we find out, yeah, that's not true, is it? But here's the deal. We speak the truth in love. This is right. This is wrong. This this is what leads to life. This is what leads to death. Here's the truth of the Word of God, and this is the important thing. Do you realize, my friends, today, there are all kinds of churches that you can go to that are lukewarm. They're neither cold nor hot. Their sermons are going to be very carefully crafted, never to offend anybody except Jesus. He says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So let's be a church that's a hospital, but preaching the truth of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen? All right, let's go on. But let's give these guys a break. Maybe it's the last fault finding they find. Verse 18. And the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting. 
And they came to him. Why do the disciples of, the, of John and of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. So again, here's what fault finders are very good at. They're finding fault at what Jesus says, what he does. Now they're finding fault at what he does not do. Because when you have a heart of fault finding, you'll find fault even when there isn't anything to find fault with. All right. And so he, he, they ask, why do those Pharisees and disciples fast? Now, let me tell you the Jewish predominant way of fasting. It wasn't always done this way. But the way the Pharisees did it is the way the Muslims fast today. You, you often hear about Ramadan where they fast for 40 days and you kind of go, Wow, that's, that's pretty dedicated. But you have to remember, those fasts are only from daylight hours. Now, let me tell you again a little bit about me. I'm not the kind of guy that gets up first thing in the morning and I want a full breakfast. Now, I am the kind of guy that wants coffee in the morning. You know, give me coffee, but easily I go without breakfast almost the majority of my life. My, my preferable time to have breakfast is like 10 you know, brunch, you know, then I can eat those eggs. You don't have to, have to choke down eggs at six in the morning. It's just not my style. So, and I tend to be a very busy person. So I can go all day long, often, and, and not eat until night. But let me tell you something. When I'm kicked back in my lazy boy chair, I, I do just fine as soon as the sun goes down. And I plop in all that food. You know how it goes, right? And, you know, that's not really that good for you to eat right before you go to bed. Especially when all you've done is eat potato chips and candy. You know, it's, it's not the best thing for you. But Jesus here is saying there's going to come a time when they do fast. Now, here's the thing. Can they fast while the bridegroom is there? My friends, do you realize what a beautiful story and picture this is? In the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, it says, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm a hopeless romantic. I love a good love story. I've actually had two wives in my life, and I've been blessed on both times, and both were a very romantic love story. And, and I love to, to be a part of weddings. But let me tell you how weddings go. Now, when we're planning out a wedding, it, it, it's pretty simple for the groom and the groomsmen. Okay? You know, they, they don't require a lot. They come dressed, and, you know, as long as they're there 15 minutes before the wedding, we're good to go. Girls, on the other hand, oh, no, they have to have their own room. And they're going to be there hours before. And there's hair and nails and makeup and the dress, and the chances are... We're still going to be late for a couple minutes, even though they've arrived four hours beforehand. But nevertheless, here's the deal. that the, the groom walks out. But what's the special moment of the wedding? Double doors at the back are thrown open. And there's the bride arrayed in a beautiful dress. You realize that's us? Jesus Christ is our bridegroom I don't understand how it works, but I know it's a tremendous truth that the Bible has laid out. In fact, the whole basis of marriage is based upon this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How Christ loved the church? He died. He laid down his life. And, and so together is this beautiful picture. And you know what's great? The first thing that we get to do, eat. Hallelujah, there's going to be a party. And isn't that the way it is? In a wedding, I, I, you know, you may now kiss the bride and hey, hey, introduce, let's go eat. All right, let the party begin here. And that's exactly how it is. And so Jesus said, yeah, there's going to be a time where you're going to fast, but we're not going to make a show out of it. And the Pharisees did. They would whiten their face. I'm sorry, but just because you haven't eaten for the last couple hours does not mean you're starving to death, right? And they'd stand on the street corner and everybody ooh and awe that they were fasting. In fact, Jesus said, when you fast, 
Yeah, just don't tell anybody you're fasting. And he who sees in secret will reward you openly. Pharisees finding fault with what Jesus is not doing. Now, it says in verse 21, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else a new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. Jesus is not interested in patching up our lives. Can I hear a hallelujah? He, he, he clearly lays out in John chapter 3, you must be born again. And you are born again when you ask Jesus Christ into your heart. It is a requirement. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, it says that when we do that, we are now new creations in Christ Jesus. And again, can I hear a hallelujah? That old person died, is no longer there. And Jesus goes on to say, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts and the wine it bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put in new wineskins. Now again, my friends, this is where it becomes a bit more tricky. Because physically this is what happens. Wine ferments. Okay? It gets bigger, it's gotta expand. So when you're fermenting wine, you have to pour it in a new wineskin while it has an elasticity. Now, after the wine is used and the wineskin is just sitting there, it's hard. Still, you could pour water in it. It's, it's going to be fine. You know, it'll be a good water container. But you can't pour new wine in it. And wine in the Bible is always a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. But, my friends, I want to tell you something. The older that we get, the more rigid we become. If you don't believe it, sit in a car driving for two hours and get out. It's like, <laughs> you know, it didn't used to be that way, you know. But, but now you, you get a bit more rigid. Seven last words of our dying church, we've never done it that way before. And I want to tell you, we've all got to be on our guard. There is one area of the church that can divide people more than anything else because it's very subjective. You know what that area is? Music. And, and let's talk about it. Because here's the deal. The younger generation has never liked the music of the older generation. I, are you so old you can't remember that? I mean, did, the, did your parents like your music? Oh, you know? And then we become parents. Oh, what are you listening to? But can that happen within the church? And again, worship is so powerful. And let's give our work team a hand. It was awesome. Because you know why? Because you, you get led into the presence of the Lord. I, I've gone through some very difficult times in my life. Have you ever gone through those times where you prayed everything there is to pray and, you know, you can't pray anymore? And I found during those hardest times and darkest times in my life, I just listened to praise music. Because every worship song is a prayer, isn't it? It's just put in a lot prettier words than I could ever do. And so even if I can, I, can, I can listen or I can actually sing the words. But I want to tell you, Satan has always attacked the music in the church. By the time this person came along, he was in Germany. The church was actually one of the chief persecutors of real Christians. The church was burning people at the stake for like wanting a Bible in their own language. In fact, when they went to church, and there was only one church, it wasn't even in a language that they could understand. And the Bible wasn't even supposed to be read by people. And so those who were truly born again were very much persecuted. And so that great movement had been stirring and going on. And all of a sudden this person went, nobody can sing the songs. It was only the trained choirs. Everybody sat there in these Dark, big, cold buildings, stone-faced. 
And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give a song. Not only am I going to give the Bible in a language that people can understand, I'm going to make songs that people can sing. And so he took a beer hall song. It happened to be in Germany. There were lots of beer halls. It was a tune that everyone knew. And he put Christian words to the tune. And you know what there were? There were people out there finding fault going, it's devil music. He'd bring a devil music in. Do you know what the guy's name was? Martin Luther. You know what the name of the song was? A mighty fortress is our God. Now let's fast forward about 500 years. There is a whole group of lost generation people called the hippies. And God uses really someone who you wouldn't think would be used. Chuck and K. Smith to begin ministering. And here's the deal. They, there was new music. As these hippies got saved, they started writing songs. Have you ever heard the, of the band Love Song? One of the very first songs. It was the very first Christian album I ever owned. But let me tell you the story about Love Song. Love Song went to Pastor Chuck and played some songs for him. He said, that's great. Can you play tonight? And they go, no, our lead singer's in jail. But he gets out Sunday night because he only had to be in jail on weekends. And Chuck said, play Sunday night. And so he played Sunday night. Now, let me tell you something. There were all kinds of churches all around Costa Mesa going, they're playing devil music there. They, they've, they've got electric guitars and drums. And it's devil. Did you know that guy was in, in jail and Chuck has him up on stage singing? But I want to tell you something. Do you know the names of all the fault finders that have surrounded Chuck there? Do you know any of their names? Have you heard Chuck Smith? As my friends, we got to understand, new wine needs to be in new wineskins. I'm 64 years old, in case you're wondering how old I am. I just had a birthday. And my, my son-in-love, BJ, said, so, do you feel any older? And I said, no, 64. Next year's Medicare. Now, that one might, you know, dim people are old people. You know, how did I get there, you know? But I want to tell you something. My greatest joy is raising up the next generation. And let me tell you something. I love singing hymns. All right? When I first started a pastor, that's what I did. So, I can be very happy singing a hymn, but I want to tell you something, what happened in my life. These people who got saved out here in the Jesus movement took about five years, but they eventually got to Kansas. And so I grew up in a Lutheran church where I had gone through catechism, you know, did the deal in front of the church, all of that, took my first communion. My name was written in the church roster. There was one problem, I wasn't saved. As far as the church was concerned, I was a finished product. I was 16 years old, and we had this group come back from California, and they had drums and guitars, and they started playing in youth group, and I started feeling the Spirit of the Lord moving until the elders of the church found out we had electric guitars and drums, and they canceled youth group. You know why? They could care less whether I was saved. Now, I've been a pastor for 40 years. My friends, you know what my heart is? I would see the next generation saved. And if that means I'm going to sing some songs I'm not familiar with, I'm all for it. Hallelujah. If it ministers to this row of young people here, I'm very happy about it because I want to see that next generation saved. I, does anybody here want to become an old wineskin? That, that God's going to have to move apart. Because, my friends, I don't care where you go in this country. On the corner of Broadway and Main Street, you'll find a great big denominational church that at one time was teeming with people and nobody is there because they became old wineskins and they would not welcome the new. They would not sing a new song. And my friends, the Spirit of God would move and create a new place. So, wouldn't you rather your entire life long? 
And if the Lord tarries another 40 years and I end up being 100 years old, and I can, I, I would prefer to be in heaven at that age. But anyway, if for some reason I'm, I'm left here, I want to see that next generation raised up. Can I hear an amen? So let's not be fault finders because there will always be those that are saying, this is devil music. And my friends, my question to them, what are you doing? Here's our litmus test for music. Are the words sound? And if they're sound, we're going to sing them. And the scripture goes on. Now it happened as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, that as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. So you got to get a little farm story. I'm a Kansas farm boy. My church, I've been there 30 years. They have every one of my farm stories numbered. Oh, that's number 23. So here's your farm story for today. When the wheat is ripe, it's still in the field, in the heads, you can take the grain, the head, and you can rub it in your hands, blow off the chaff, and all you're left with is grain. You can throw it in your mouth and chew it. If you chew wheat long enough, it actually becomes gum, you know, wheat gum. I used to do it all the time. Uh, you know, when was, uh, my birthday was in the middle of harvest, so I always spent my birthday in the harvest field. And I'd be in the back end of a truck with a load of wheat back there, and I'd just be eating handfuls of, of wheat. Of course, you had to pick out the grasshopper legs and June bugs and others, but nevertheless. So, and the Bible says this was okay. If you were traveling along, you could, you could do that from someone's field. Now, you couldn't take a sickle and go start harvesting their field, but if you're walking along... You could help yourself to it. And the Pharisees. Oh, we're going to find these fault finders all the way through. The Pharisees said to him, look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, and I love this. Have you never read? You should read the Bible, you know. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry and, he, and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, except for the priest, and also gave some those who were with him. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. They had taken what God intended to be a blessing. You know what he intended? You have a day off where you could worship the Lord. But they had wrapped it up so with so many rules and regulations. Aren't you glad that Jesus is better than any rules and regulations? Aren't you glad that Jesus is willing to meet a paralyzed person and right then and there forgiven? Because it means for all of us, whatever we've done, Lord Lord's true in what he says. Your sins and lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Aren't you glad that we get to serve a Lord who looks past the failings and fault of people like Matthew? He saw what he could become. He said, come follow me. Because Jesus is here today saying, I want you to follow me. I, I want to use all of you. My friends, this is why division is so bad. And why we have to be so careful. Because today, division's on steroids. It's called social media. And let me tell you how I deal with anybody that is that way. If I see someone being divisive on social media, I unfollow them. I don't need them in my life. I don't want to hear what they're having to say. And I want to be that person that's a disciple of Jesus and part of the kingdom of God changing our world. Do you realize how powerful it is that you guys are planted right here? Is this Main or Broadway? Main Street. You're planted on Main Street in Tooele, Utah? Is that not a miracle of God? And so as we stand together, as brothers and sisters united. Now, you ever going to find fault with Chris and Lydia? 
Yes. You know why they're people? People find fault with me? Of course. Every single pastor in every single church, people are always going to be able to find fault. But we've got to do what the Bible says. And you know what the Bible says to do? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, as is the manner of some. And there are those who, I mean, they've been to this church. I've been a pastor in Maxville for so long. I've seen people leave our church, go to this church, to this church, to this church, and they're back. And then they're gone. Some people are on their fourth lap, you know. And, uh, you know, and I've seen some of those people, they're in any church good enough, so they start their own. All right? But here's the deal. For us, let's be disciples of Jesus because it's so exciting seeing him turn the world upside down. Amen? Let's all stand.